Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Oh, we've got authors. We're, indeed, and we've got books. And we have. So and we better get started. started. Jan, Molly Dean is dead. Oh. Ah, forever immortalised in a portrait. How she died and an exploration of the possible suspects is the focus of Catherine Kovacic's novel, The Portrait of Molly Dean. So, Catherine, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David and Jan. Now, Molly was a real person, and before I get you to explain some of what uh, she did in her brief life, um, you actually quote from one of her poems, My doom is written thus, and now I take what might be stayed for many crowded years, Death will be a great darkness and a terror on my tired soul. Some remarkably prescient lines. So who was Molly Dean? Molly Dean, she was 25 years old in 1930. She was a special education teacher, middle-class background, but she had dreams of becoming something more. She wanted to become an author. She wanted to write a great novel. And to do that, she'd become part of Melbourne's artistic bohemian circle. She was dealing with artists, writers, musicians, and then it all came to a sudden end. But just on that, the bohemian lifestyle Mm -hmm. was uh, somewhat divergent. One could say that. Um, We had a very dynamic art scene in Melbourne in the 1930s, and we had one particular group who... Well, I suppose they were like today's celebrities. They were the ones that if they came into a restaurant when you were there, everyone else would stop to have a look at their their long hair and their slightly more flamboyant style of dressing and certainly the way they conducted themselves. They were they were the, the new young guard taking over from the Heidelberg School. But when they were conducting themselves in their homes, there was something a little untoward there as well, wasn't there? Well, they seem to be a little perhaps uh, freer, shall we say, in the way they conducted their relationships. Not not majorly so, but certainly they were much more permissive than society at large in the 1930s. And yet Molly was in the education department, which Indeed. required a certain code of conduct, mm-hmm. etc., and compliance. And some of her uh, records or education department records are online. You can look them up. That's correct, yes. But then... Jumping to the end of the novel, you describe her death in the penultimate chapter. A hulking shape loomed, grabbed her ankles and dragged her from Addison Street into the cobbled lane, a Stygian river of blood marking their path. So her death is not in question. Rather, it's the details surrounding her death, the suspects, the motives and the strange circumstances of what followed this some curious or peculiarities about this death, isn't there? Very much so. Well, Molly's murderer was never actually caught. They, the police had a suspect and they thought they had him right down to the line. The coroner thought he was guilty. He was sent for trial and on the first day of the trial all the charges were dismissed and that was the end of the story. The, the case disappeared from the press. It doesn't seem that the police continued to investigate And that was really the end of Molly's story. And the records? Well, a lot of the records disappeared. There are some in the public records office now, but uh, by and large, the majority, certainly all the police notes and what have you, simply disappeared. Well, this then brings us to what you've done in 
the novel, The Portrait of Molly Dean, because you then construct a story in the 1990s, 1999, etc. Uh, Alex Clayton is an art historian dealer who has acquired a portrait of Molly Dean by the painter Colin Collahan. And so this sets Alex on a quest to discover the provenance of the portrait. That's right. Well, Colin Colohan was, was one of the key figures in that bohemian art circle that we were talking about, and he was Molly's lover. So we know that, in fact, he did paint her portrait. He painted a nude of her, and we know where the nude is, but there was also a portrait of her which appears in one of his catalogues simply as a listing titled Molly Dean, and we don't know where that portrait is. But when Alex finds this painting... She originally thinks, being a dealer, she's a little bit of a grifter. She thinks she'll do a bit of digging, get a bit more dirt on the story and represent the painting for sale with a nice juicy tale attached to it to boost the price. But this brings us to Alex, uh, Alex's personality mm-hmm. and um, the art historian as sleuth in some ways, detective. Indeed. Well, I think being a detective is always part of being a, an art historian and certainly a dealer because... Things come up that perhaps don't have a signature, perhaps they do have a signature but it doesn't quite look right, or perhaps they're dirty and slightly overpainted but there's a glimmer of something hiding underneath. So you have to figure out what's underneath. Is it worth pursuing what's underneath? Is it worth looking at the back of the painting? Is it worth finding out the story? And most importantly, is it worth throwing your money down and taking the chance? But in in many ways, this world of... Art provenance is just as grubby and insidious as a, as a murder mystery. Ooh. Ooh. We'll tread some dangerous ground there, but yes, I think it, it is. There's, um, it's, it's probably harder today with the internet, but certainly uh, there's, there's all sorts of little tricks and things, you know, polishing paintings up. As I said, a nice little signature over the top of what might be a fairly average landscape, but gosh, if you pop a little macabre or a street and signature over the top of it, who knows what sort of riches you could be rolling in. So it, it really offers the opportunity of creating a detective in some ways uh, who is sort of just out of the norm and, and such like. And Alex is an independent young lady uh, making her way in, in the art world. But her investigation then leads to some interesting potential suspects, Colin Collahan. So there are, there's the potential for jealous lovers. Indeed. Well, Colin was certainly um, on the police radar to begin with. He was one of the last people to see Molly alive. Uh, But fortunately for him, there'd been a phone call and the police did work out that there was no way he could have made a a wild taxi ride across Melbourne's dark streets to have got from his home, killed Molly and and gotten back home again. And just on Colin, he then basically left the country. Yes, he did. uh, About three years after, three to five years after Molly's death, he left Australia for Europe and never came back. So there's a sense that it affected him very deeply. Yes, yes, and he always maintained that that was part of the reason he left Australia. Certainly the death of Molly herself and the fact that you know he, his picture and his name appeared in the paper associated with the case. Part of his business was painting portraits of Melbourne society's good and great and you can understand that having been associated with such a horrific scandal, uh, the Turak socialites didn't really want him in their homes anymore. Then Molly's mother 
comes under suspicion as well. Just Did I tell you about how she dragged me into the house by my hair a few weeks ago? Molly generally told Sarah most of what went on at Milton Road, and she showed some of her bruises too. So this is, I mean, the relationship there was... Oh. It was an incredibly toxic relationship, and I think this is Molly's mother. One of her first responses to Molly's death was, don't bother looking for who did it, you'll never catch him, and can I get the insurance now? And that was the extent of the grieving mother that Molly Dean left behind. But it gets a bit grubbier than that. We've got Adam Graham on the scene. Would you care to explain what went on there? In, wow, in how many minutes have we got? Adam Graham, a uh, lover of Molly's mother, um, stalker of Molly. Uh, Rumours that Molly's mother had hoped to set Molly up with Adam Graham. I'm not quite sure how that bed-hopping kind of works. Um, very suspicious man indeed, and no real alibi for the night in question. Even his family didn't seem to know where he was. A very shady character indeed, and the police's main suspect, but... It all came to nothing. It all came to nothing. We might come back to Adam shortly. Six women attacked in the neighbourhood. Yes, and uh, again, not really much of a case made of it by the police. Uh, There was some question with some of them that was just, you know, a bit of group hysteria, you know, uh, jumping on the the get-a-bit-of-attention bandwagon, but certainly all these attacks actually occurred, and they occurred in Molly's neighbourhood essentially in the path she took from the train station to her home. But was there anything in particular about Molly's death that made it stand out from the others? Certainly the brutality of the attack. Uh, Most of the women who were attacked um, were hit but then left alone. Molly was beaten quite savagely. Um, Her skull was fractured badly and then she was throttled with one of her own stockings and left in a pool of blood. Now... In terms of then the main suspect, Adam Graham, he actually gets out on bail, Mm -hmm. which is posted immediately, and his case is never brought to trial. That's correct, yes. Uh, A large, very large bail for the period, posted immediately by uh, a fairly anonymous person, seemed to be no relation to anybody. He was asleep when bail was posted, having, uh, having been told that he was being sent for trial, Uh, they had to wake him up. So he didn't seem to be too upset about being potentially convicted of this crime. And um, it was only a few months, unlike the court system of today, it was only a few short months between that point and the trial. But on day one of the trial, all charges dismissed. Now, this leads then to what you've done as the author in framing a bit more of a background. How much do you want to tell us about uh, the character of Rayburn? Well, um, probably not too much, but uh, we, <laughs> uh, because Adam Graham wasn't ultimately uh, found guilty of anything, there needed to be some, if he wasn't guilty, who was? So essentially I've potentially created a who was, whether he was in it alone, whether the police were potentially involved, whether Adam Graham was still involved. Because, well, where the police are concerned, what, what well... Um, what's going on in the, the 1930s where the police are concerned, involved and, and the like? What's the sort of social context of what's going on? Well, there's, there was a lot going on in Melbourne at the time. We'd, we'd had Squizzy Taylor, who was killed in 1927. Uh, we had a, 
an interesting police force who were the chief of police was subsequently uh, the subject of a royal commission. But he was found, or his badge was found, wasn't it? Indeed. There was a, a very uh, iffy little story, the uh, police commissioner Blamey, badge number 80. Uh, his badge was found during a brothel raid. However, um, the... Uh, the officers who found this badge uh, were subsequently able to say that whereas Blamey, and I can't remember the exact description, was tall and clean-shaven, the gentleman who'd had the badge was short and had a beard and Blamey subsequently said, uh, oh, uh, my badge was stolen just several days ago. So very convenient uh, and I think really the tip of the iceberg for some of the things that seemed to have been going on at the time. But it leads then to this notion of corruption and Absolutely. the reason why we can't find or the investigation could have been potentially stalled by higher powers, uh, the police are taking bribes, all sorts of things, by someone of influence. Um, now, adding to the complication, of course, Alex Clayton in the 1990s is basically mugged on her way home carrying a portrait. That's right, yes, well... Alex uh, discovers, and she's a bit of a pig-headed kind of woman, she discovers that someone else is also interested in this painting and so that, that spurs her on to, to look a bit harder and dig a bit deeper. But it gets a little bit more dangerous than she'd anticipated. So you've, you've actually now brought the two worlds together, the 1930s and the 1990s, and it raises the interesting spectre that the perpetrators or people associated with the perpetrators of Molly Dean's death could still well be alive. Well, that's right. Someone was very, very keen to uh, to sweep things under the carpet at the time. So it stands to reason that should events uh, seem to be coming to light, you know, almost 70 years later, that if those people were still around, they'd be equally keen to not let that happen. So, and also then uh, you've added another dimension because in this portrait or behind this portrait are some documents that could well, in fact, implicate people because Molly had tried to make a career as a journalist. That's right, that's right. So Molly may well have stumbled across something that was far bigger than she'd anticipated and um, perhaps written it all down. Um, now, you have a background in art history. I do, I do. Um, I actually have a PhD in art history uh, so I do some some curatorial, sort of freelance curatorial work and quite a bit of research as well. So what is it about the art world that makes it so dangerous and insidious and dark? Oh, I think it's the mystery and, as I said, the, the potential that you might find that lost masterpiece. But, and basically, yes, Molly's portrait, as you've got it here, turns up because it was given away to the Salvation Army. So we'll have people after this show haunting the op shops and the Salvation it, Army. It does happen. It, it does, does happen, happen indeed. So the book is The Portrait of Molly Dean, the author Catherine Kovacic, and it's an Echo publishing release. Jan. Well, I'm moving from murder and mystery to love. Oh, well, there you go. Have you ever been given flowers? Flowers, of course, are associated with different days. Chrysanthemums for Mother's Days, lilies for funerals, and red roses for love. We'll learn a bit more about these in today's book, The Art of Preserving Love. Welcome, Ada Langton. Thank you. Well, we've got Theo. 
What did he do at 3pm every Sunday for six years? Uh, Theo was a very patient man who um, didn't have a good grasp of language um, due to his experiences in the Boer War. But he decides that he wants a particular girl and he's very patient about getting her and every Sunday he heads off to her place to try and woo her. And he doesn't get her. Oh, but the community support this. There's the community. And you better tell us who this community is. The commu- it's set in Ballarat in 1905 and goes to 1926. So it covers quite a, a long space of time. And, yeah, look, Theo's march from his house to the girl's house uh, becomes something that people join in. The children follow him. The women the watch him, the men watch him. Ballarat. The women all watch him and think, oh, isn't that romantic? The men? The, the men the men are a bit cross that he's setting a standard they don't want to have to meet with their own wives. No. <laughs> so for six years this happens and it doesn't lead into marriage. But Edie, this is the woman that uh, Theo goes to see. Edie's mother died suddenly. And she was very much loved by her husband, Paul Cottingham, the the local lawyer in Ballarat at the time. How does he preserve his love? Um, Well, I don't want to give too much away, but he really um, does something quite remarkable um, to his house that really just stuns the whole community as a way of trying to preserve the love that he has for his wife. Um, So, and Edie, you know, Edie was the beginning of the book. Like, I I suppose my initial thought was, um, you know, to... to, I just kind of thought, you know, about a young girl shortening her dress to attract a man. Mm -hmm. You know, Edie is in a situation where women didn't have much choice other than to get married and she feels she's too old to find somebody, so she thinks she'll shorten her dress. And I thought, you know, well, what would happen if a girl shortened her dress in a time when it really was forbidden rather than just, you know, like in the 60s we were all shortening our dresses. Mm-hmm. I think I used to wear ones that were right up around my bum. But um, when I was much, much younger. <laughs> um, but, you know, what happens when you short your dre- shorten your dress in a society where it's completely forbidden and, and, and shocking? Of course, Ballarat is two years behind the, the rest of the world anyway. Mm, exactly. <laughs> well, look, and even Theo's own mother, Lily, she had lost her husband, uh, Peter, and, and she preserved her love. Yeah, and um, also, you know, the focus of her life became Theo. So whilst Theo is very, very skinny and doesn't put on any weight, Lily gets fatter and fatter because she basically eats for her son. And every day she used to wear, her her husband just disappeared, but every day she used to wear the same dress, wash it out in the morning and have it ready at six o'clock at that night until she just outgrew the dress. And, of Mm. course, the dress had rosebuds on it. Ah, well, Gracie was the reason Edie and Theo didn't marry. Now, what did Gracie have that absolutely entranced people? Um, Gracie had a, a smile that people just couldn't resist. So, um, and it was a smile that kind of like, you know, Gracie had the ability to change situations so that things would be set on a new course. This quote from the book. When that child smiles, you know God is smiling down on the world. And now we're going to move God into the uh, church and talk a little bit about 
Reverend Whitlock. He uh, used to push his views in certain sermons. Yeah, um, I suppose... What would he think about these girls lifting <laughs> that hemline by two inches? Yeah, he, he wasn't very approving. Um, I, and, you know, one of, one of the aspects of the book is looking at the political climate of the time. And, you know, so Paul, Edie's father, um, is very liberal in his views and very pro-workers and pro-the rights of women, whereas Reverend Whitlock is very stuck in his time and wanting everything to remain the same and, and pro the status quo so that you've got the two men with very different views coming up against each other constantly. You've got to remember Ballarat, of course, is the gold mining town. Mm. And, and it, it is. It was just over simple things like, you know, sort of how the miners get paid. And mm. it was, and, and uh, Reverend Whitlock is pushing a lot of his own personal views from the sermon area. And, and the rice for women, oh dear. <laughs> um, you, as you say, uh, Paul, Edie's father, the, the lawyer, and to become judge in Ballarat, he's very much for the equal pay, equal work, all of these women's rights, except for his daughters. Yeah, and for him he saw that as being um, a part of his social justice framework, that he was wealthy enough to support his daughters, therefore it wasn't right for them to go and get jobs that could be for other people. So his daughters shouldn't be working because he could afford to support them. Yeah. So, it was, it, you know, it was part of his social justice framework that, that they shouldn't need to work and shouldn't have to. We um, skip into part three. It's very short and it's set World War I in the trenches and the involvement there brings into a whole new character, an Englishman called Reuben Rose. And he didn't have much love in his life. He had a lot of lust. <laughs> <laughs> Reuben is actually the only character in the book that's actually based on a real person and he was based on my grandfather who was um, Jewish uh, living in England and he was a fighter in World War a pilot in World War one and I have this wonderful photograph of him sort of you know standing there just looking like he thinks and knows that he is an absolute hero and that women just can't resist him. He's got a cigarette dangling from his mouth. He's young and he's virile and you can just sense, you know, how exciting he thought life was for him at that time. And those pilots were celebrities at that time. They were written up in the newspapers and women fawned all over them. And like my grandfather, um, Reuben has a conversion experience and ends up in Australia. So that was the one character that was actually based on a real person and he was based on my grandfather who brought me up, um, who I was very devoted to. And I just found it very interesting that, you know, this photograph was obviously a very different man to the man that I experienced as a grandfather and the journey that he took from being that pilot to being this very religious, uh, rigid person. So his life changed dramatically mm. through this book and in mm. real life. But then the other character that we haven't spoken about is Beth, who was an orphan. She grew up in uh, Edie and Paul and young daughter Gracie's household mm -hmm. she never really knew whether she was servant or sister yep and 
she made the big move from going well she, she broke off her engagement because well there was a lot of betrayal there oh yes this was but oh, there was but she was engaged to a local coal miner called Colin and um after witnessing these roses coming every day, and she'd be the one who answered the door to... Um, well, we don't want to give too much away. We don't, but this is Colin, Colin, who said to her after she broke off the engagement to him, I'll tell you what I'm not doing. I'm not bringing you frickin' roses each week, that's for sure. If that's what you're thinking, no, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to wait for you to come to your senses. Well, she doesn't. She Instead of coming to her senses, she goes to um, the city from Ballarat down to Melbourne and becomes involved in the Women's Political Association. Mm. Now, that sounded fascinating. So I, I would say you've done some reading and research on that. Look, I'm a terrible researcher. I hate research. I write the story and then I find the research that I need Fair to, <laughs> to, um, to earth the story. And for me, it's always the story that is foremost. And I know that there's wonderful writers like Philippa Gregory who do know all the historical research before they obviously then bring that to life. But for me, the story comes first and then I earth the story. Well, I like the other way you earth the story with Bovril. Now, I don't know whether a lot of listeners know what Bovril is, but it's it's like a, a beef stock that's used to mix. Mm. Tell uh, what Edie used to do with Bovril. Uh, Edie packages up the Bovril and sends it off to the front, like bottles and bottles and bottles of it, jars and jars and jars of it. Well, my knowing person so. over there, David, said he knew what Bovril was. I can <laughs> see by the shake of his head, but I wonder if he knows what Bovril, the name, comes from. No, I don't, actually. Oh. Ah. Well. Um, Bovril comes from, I have to remember this correctly. which means cow. Cow and... Vril. Which means electrolyte, I think, or fluids, yeah. Yeah. So the idea was that the the beef stock caused this electrical uh, reaction in your body that would then heal you of whatever illness you had. So she sends the Bovril off to the front to heal the soldiers. And it's all connected. It all becomes connected with Mm. Reuben and Theo and... The Queen's letter, a letter from um, the Queen, and oh, very interesting there. And of course, it's placed in history too. 1927, uh, there were more motor vehicles than horses that year, first time ever. And I love this that the police were fining drivers for going over 15 miles per hmm. hour and getting quite a lot of money from doing so. <laughs> they were, yeah. <laughs> they got to keep it, I think. So there was a lot of incentive there. Uh, look, it's a story about women, the changes in women. And, you know, we're talking about... It, it, when we think back on the past, we think, oh, yes, it was so, so stayed with, you know, sort of women uh, having to get married and all of this. And, of course, with your writer, Catherine, we talk think about the lovers in St Kilda around that way. And also this whole thing about companionable relationships. Mm, that was really big in the 1920s, and I didn't realise that. Um, but it was it was quite fashionable to be in a companion relationship, and it was quite fashionable to be a divorcee, I think is how they pronounced it, isn't it? Divorcee, divorcee. And so a lot of women would say that they were divorcees because it sounded exotic and daring. And, yeah, mm. so that was quite interesting to find that out. But the companionable would have been ambiguous in nature because the women couldn't be necessarily by themselves. You'd have to 
have a companion? Oh, they, yeah. she certainly did. She certainly had one with benefits too. With benefits. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. No, so no basi- basically it was a friends with benefits relationship, right. which of course um, in a lot of circles would have been similar to your but would have been seen um, as not being okay, you know, um, being socially taboo. But a lot of women were having companion relationships, which we would well, now just call friends with benefits. What what I interpreted uh, another female being a companion. Oh, which no, was, oh okay, too. yeah, yes, no, this was, was that too. Male, 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 female oh, relationships. We had, we had them all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, well, there's all in this book because I wanted to explore lots of different ways in which people have relationships that sustain their lives. A book about love in all its forms. Yes. I think that's what yep. it was. And, of course, that book was The Art of Preserving Love by Ada Langton. And I have been talking to Catherine Kovacic about the portrait of Molly Dean, which is about death and painting. <laughs> <laughs> we had it all here, Indeed. published or not. And we will see you and we'll have it all again next, next week. week.